Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Charlotte's story begins in Bali. Like most young Australians, she yearned to travel and volunteering at an orphanage was a natural step after working at a childcare centre in Melbourne. At 18 years of age, Charlotte had already achieved so much in her young life and often against the odds. She raced BMX bikes from the age of three, was a ballroom dancing champion and crewed on a racing yacht a sport that took her to those wild oceans off Britain. But all this was just a small part of Charlotte's young life. Now in her 30s, Charlotte has been living with HIV for 10 years. Welcome, Charlotte. Hi, Heather. My story starts, um, I was always a go-getter. I was always looking for something more and I was always looking for, you know, a bigger rush, a bigger thrill in life. And I thought, you know, I had such a passion for childcare and working with children. And I just thought, you know, what more could I do than volunteer in an orphanage where I can volunteer my time and my skills of loving children? So um, off I went. I um, did, well, first off, I did a fundraiser by baking slices. And once after a couple of weeks, I'd had enough money from fundraising, off I went. And I donated the money that I had made to the orphanage and really spontaneous. One day I just Googled Bali orphanages and I emailed a handful of them and I got a reply from one and they said, okay, see you next week. Were you the only volunteer there? Yeah, it was really bizarre when I arrived. Um, I arrived at the airport at about midnight. I didn't speak any Indonesian and I had only ever been there once when I was um, oh, maybe six months before on a week holiday with a girlfriend. And I arrived at the airport and there was a strange man standing there with um, a sign with my name on it. And I thought, well, this must be my ride. So I went over and introduced myself and I got in this strange man's car and off we drove um, to the middle of a jungle in the middle of the night. It was pitch black and he literally dropped me at the door and said goodbye. So I walked in and there was nobody there to greet me. Everyone was asleep. So I just wandered around the compounds and was very confused as to what I was meant to do. So I, I found a bedroom and I just parked up there for the night. And I remember calling my mum and I was like, there's giant geckos on the walls. There's a huntsman in my toilet and no one was there. And then at 5 a.m., this huge alarm and siren went off and I could hear all these little children. It was an all-girls orphanage and I could hear all these little girls all running and cheering and going into a hall and still no one had come to meet me or introduce me yet. So I followed the noises and I walked into this hall and all these little girls turned and stared at me. And so when you got there, like what, was, what, were, what were the children like? What was their reaction to this stranger coming into their life? So I just waved and said, hi. I'm here to help. And they all kind of giggled and ran up and started touching me. And I just had a big bag of gifts of Australian teddy bears and money to buy rice and a washing machine for them. <laughs> a washing machine? Yeah, because I realized that's what they needed. These girls were scrubbing, scrubbing their clothes with, you know, on a rock with soap. And I thought, you know, a washing machine would, would really benefit these children, you know, so they had a quality of childhood, not 
washing their own underwear each day. So after about half an hour of the children fussing over me, an adult walked into the room and she said, oh, hi, you must be Charlotte. That must have been an amazing, amazing experience and an amazing amount of um, warmth and love that they would have been, you know, giving you while, while you were there, like being part of their life and helping them learn English. No one really spoke much English. It was very broken and um, very difficult to communicate. But they said to me that morning, okay, now you go to school. So I followed all these girls off to school. I thought, well, I guess I'm going where these girls are going. So I followed this group of children to school and they had me teach um, teach some English to the girls each morning and just, you know, be part of the class and join in in sports and just show the children, you know, the love and affection. You didn't stay at the orphanage for a long time. You were saying to me before that you you then moved from, from the orphanage. I stayed at the orphanage for a month. And I realized the orphanage wasn't what I thought it to be. A lot of these children had parents and had um, been sold to the orphanages to get money from to get money from tourists and volunteers and things. So that didn't sit quite right with me. Yeah, so I went with good intentions, but as it unfolded to me, it, it didn't feel right. So I knew it was my time to move on, but I didn't want to leave Bali. So I headed down to Kuda, where you know where all the tourists are, and I thought, well, I've got about $200 in my pocket. How long can this last me and what can I do? So I um, I rented a single room, which cost me about $30 a month. I had no no mattress. So I made the most of that. I laid a sarong down on the bed and I surfed each day. And then I met some um, girls walking on the beach one day. Yeah, I think they were from Sweden. And they said they worked at a nightclub as um, public relations, which I later found out that was to get doled up and dance around out the front of a nightclub handing out flyers and free drinks to girls so I um I got a job doing that and as you can imagine it was amazing great fun to start with I got an awesome accommodation in a hotel I got to party for free and it was a whole different world from being in an orphanage to all of a sudden my life was the night and I was living the dream of an 18 year old being paid to party and have fun and as I lived there longer after a few months you know more people get to know you and I was really into the tattoo scene um, and I made great friends with a local girl who was only 14 and she was fully covered in tattoos from top to bottom and she lived in Bali on her own and was working in a tattoo studio and she became my best friend so I also started hanging out and you know um, I'd get free tattoos and I'd have to walk on the beach and show off the tattoos and that's how I got money for lunch and things. It was, you know, we'll tattoo you, you show off the tattoos, tell them where to come and get it done and we'll buy you food for you each day. Um, but the longer I stayed in the tattoo studio, I realised uh, something wasn't quite something wasn't quite the norm and I noticed, you know, they were a lot of, they would, often sneak out the back and they'd be out in the toilet for a while and I always wondered what they're doing and the young girl she said to me oh we use amphetamines and the way they pronounced it I believe she said and vitamins because they pronounce the f's as v's so I was like right well do you want to try it it makes you have lots of energy and I was still you know very skeptical and I I didn't see what they're doing and I avoided it for a few more weeks and then I thought well, you know, she seems fine. I may as well try it. And it was ice. Did you know anything about ice before before you went to Bali? I had come from a family that don't do drugs, don't drink, don't smoke, just a very um, 
a very conservative family of when it comes to drugs and alcohol. But um, once I tried the smoking methamphetamine, um, I was just addicted instantly. I um, didn't know that you could be so addicted and so dependent and this um, sense of euphoria that was so extreme that you would always be chasing, but you could never meet that same sense of, of high ever again. You know, I wanted more, but I didn't have the money. And I noticed a man was delivering it every day. And I thought, well, my best bet is to get to know him if I want to be able to keep using, you know, this thing that made me feel so amazing. I became an addict very quickly. And the mindset of an addict changes. You literally change. You know, your morals change. um, Your way of life changes in an instant where you use to live and you live to use. And you will get your drugs no matter the means but you have to do to get it. And for me, I didn't I didn't want to have to prostitute myself. I didn't want to have to lie to my parents for money. So I thought, well, you know, this man was attractive. He had the drugs. He, it, he looked cool. You know, it, I was 18. This looked exciting. This man invited me to his home village and I said, yeah, sure, why not? He goes on another adventure. So on the back of a motorbike for five or six hours, I went and he took me to his family's village. And within maybe six weeks, we were married. Wow, that is very quick. Yeah, I called my parents. and I said, guess what? I'm getting married tomorrow. And obviously I was in a state of delusion and so drug affected that I had lost, um, you know, or clarity of making correct judgments and you know I was very impulsive and this drug you know took away my anxiety took away um my obsessive compulsive disorder that I had battled for years so you know I was just self-medicated and I felt free from mental health for the first time in a long time as well so that was also another reason why I wanted to keep taking these drugs so anyway yeah so I just thought well I'll marry this man why not like I believed I loved him and, you know, what a what an exciting event to get married in Bali and in a ceremony it can be about me and, you know, we'll have a big party and things change very quickly. Did your mum come over for the wedding? Um, no, no one came because I really only called them two days before and told them it was happening and, yeah, they were in shock. My mum did, did come a few weeks later. When I was like, you have to come and meet him. He's amazing, rah, rah. But by after a couple of weeks of being married, um, things changed very quickly. They became very violent, very abusive. He attempted to kill me a few times. Um, it was a life of trafficking drugs in and out of Bali prisons and, you know, being raided by police and guns held to your head. And it was just this adrenaline, go, go, go. And I was so far in and so addicted. I didn't know any way out at this point. I didn't know that there was a thing called recovery. I didn't know that there was there was hope. I just continued on that path. And then you then you um you're saying to me you found out you were pregnant. Yeah, so I think it was only maybe a few weeks after we were married. Um, he desperately wanted a baby. He said, "Well, now that we're married, we have to have a baby because in my culture that's what we have to do, and it has to be a boy, so we have to have a baby." And I was like, yeah, okay, another great idea. And at the back of my mind, I also knew that that was going to be my only escape from using drugs because I knew that I couldn't use them when I was pregnant. From there, I thought, well, I need to leave this country. I need to return home because 
if I have any chance of giving birth to a healthy child that's not going to be affected from these drugs, I, I need to remove myself from the country. So I did the whole geographical and packed my bags and moved back to Australia and I stopped using drugs as soon as I returned home. I would have been about 12 weeks pregnant. That's where my story took me. I went to the GP to have you know, my exciting pregnancy test and all my blood tests. And because I had been living overseas, they, they included a HIV test at the time. Yeah. And then part of being when you're pregnant in Australia, you know, you have a HIV test. That's, that's what happens as soon as you're pregnant. And I got a phone call to come down and they asked me to bring my mum as well, which I, I found a bit odd, but I thought, well, you know, maybe they want me, you know, because they know how close I am to my mum to share the exciting news. And I'm really grateful they did ask my mum to come because she's, you know, she's my soulmate. She's my best friend. Did your husband come with you to Australia? Did he come back with you at that time? At this point, he did come back. He thought, you know, I'd come and see what the Australian life was all about. And so, yeah, he came and he was waiting there, you know, the news of my pregnancy to be confirmed and everything. And in the room, the doctor told me, you know, I'm your HIV positive. And my world just fell apart. My mum, my mum just cried and cried. And I was so confused as to what was going to happen. I just presumed, well, I'm going to die and my baby's going to die. And and prior to the diagnosis, you probably had heard nothing about HIV or what was involved or the treatments that were available. I hadn't even been spoken to in school of HIV. It was never taught to us. We were never, you know, we did the one or two sex ed classes about condoms and how not to get pregnant, but they would never talk to you about HIV or anything like this. Um, so I went home from my doctor's appointment and I told my husband at the time, I've had a HIV test and it's positive, you need to go and have one. Uh, he was very, very angry and abusive towards me and claimed I must have been a prostitute and all these nasty things. And he did end up going and get tested and they found out that he had HIV and hep C and he was quite far along in his HIV journey and had and was becoming quite unwell. So he decided to return back to Bali, which was fine. You know, I, I was heartbroken, but I, I had hope for me and my baby I'd met an amazing nurse from one of the clinics who came and, you know, explained everything to me and that I was going to survive. I was going to live, you know, a really healthy life and my son was going to survive and live a, you know, an absolutely normal life in regards to not to be born with HIV. And, you know, and, and I let go a lot of guilt once I realised that my baby wasn't going to be affected because I was very guilt-ridden of to what have I done to, my, to this poor unborn child. But I was very relieved when I found out that he would be fine if I took the meds and I took the protocols that the doctors had suggest, you know, said to me, this is what you need to do. I did every single thing, you know, they would, they would offer something and I would take it. They would say, this is important. I would listen for me and my son. Yeah, to fast forward, what, 10 years later, I have three, three very healthy boys. None of them have HIV. I, I have a new partner because I'm undetectable, I'm untransmittable, who, you know, we have a healthy relationship. He doesn't live in fear of uh, being infected with HIV, which is really reassuring to our relationship. You've been with your partner for four years, but you haven't had used condoms um, having sex for four years and he has he does not contracted HIV. So with, um, you know, there's like zero, virtually zero chance uh, when your viral load is undetectable. 
Um, and and you're like living proof of that, as is many studies with thousands of couples in the same situation, and there's been no transmission. When you told him you you had HIV, he, he was very upset, as most new partners of people living with HIV are, and because they have no knowledge of the treatments and um, something called U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. That's simply what had happened is, you know, he hadn't been given, he didn't have any education about HIV, just like I hadn't had the education the day I found out. So, you know, once I sat down and explained to him and and educated him on the U equals U and explained, you know, I'm on antiretrovirals, my viral load is undetectable, that puts you at an extremely low risk and I wouldn't put you, I wouldn't want to ever put you at risk, you know, because I obviously love and care about you. And um, once I had taken the time to explain that to him and educate him and take him for a test, um, you know, things really calmed down. Yeah, and I choose to get my um, viral load and CD4s done every three months. You know, the doctors have said, look, you don't need to come every three months. You can do it every six to 12 months now because you are so well and your medication works so well with you. But I choose to um, get it done every three months so I have that peace of mind, you know, in I don't have to worry in the back of my mind at all. So I find that reassuring as a mother and as a partner that that's my way of taking extra responsibility just to keep a track on to make sure my viral load continues to stay undetectable, which it always has. I feel, you know, I feel I'm glad that that's what I do. And you have three children. You had, you've had two, two children, two boys. You've got three boys all together and two boys to your new partner. And all your boys are perfectly healthy, do not have HIV. Yeah, because that's one of the questions, you know, as a mother myself, people, when they, I tell people, they say, oh, are the boys okay? Um, for some reason, they think that your children are... It's always, what about the baby? What about your kids? And, you know, I can say so confidently is, you know, my children are HIV negative because I took the medications that I need to take, which is only one tablet a day to make sure that my children, you know, had the best chance at life and would not be born with HIV. And none of them have been. And, you know, they are all very healthy, very active, very boisterous, loud, bubbly boys. You know, I haven't, my children don't know yet because I, well, for me, I believe they're too young to understand. But when they grow up and I can explain to them what, you know, what had happened to mum, they can have that peace of mind that, you know, mum's not going to die nothing bad's going to happen to mum because of this, which is really reassuring as a mum to be able to come out to my children and explain mum's not going to die, mum's going to be okay. My three boys, they, they're teenage, young teenagers and, um, it, you know, it's, it's fantastic that they know because when there's some information on TV about HIV, they're, they're really interested and they're educating their, their peers at school who surprisingly will say, oh, what, I've never heard of HIV, what's HIV? So which in this day and age, completely, you know, unbelievable that that is happening with sexual health education in schools. It's scary, the lack of education still and and the stigma and the confusion and things behind HIV, which is still quite frightening that, you know, this lack of education to be started in early childhood to break that stigma. And this is what this podcast is all about with women sharing their stories is to what when we speak out and share our stories, hopefully people will be educated and understand and be better informed and that will end stigma because 
the stigma comes through a lack of information, just lack of education, lack complete ignorance around HIV. And yourself, you've experienced stigma. I've experienced so much stigma, um, especially more with my first child, and it's become less um, as I've had each child, which I'm really grateful for because the first one, you know, I was asked to leave a mother's group in case my child was to bite another child, which is just ridiculous, which again is is sad due to you know, lack of education. I've had HIV t- um, tests taken on my baby, unfortunately, without my consent, again, due to lack of education. Yeah, when babies are born, I mean, as part of the procedure is to ensure the baby hasn't contracted somehow, which would be almost impossible, has contracted HIV, they're tested anyway. My children had all had their two to three, like at four weeks, you know, birth, four weeks, and I think it was 12 weeks that they had their testing at, and each baby had a course of four weeks of antiretroviral syrup that they were given each day as a you know, some medical situations that they don't understand that and um, and just, yeah, because they assume, oh, you're HIV positive, maybe the child's HIV positive as well. So they just have no understanding of... I've just experienced that recently. Um, my youngest has been quite unwell in and out of hospital with nothing to do with HIV, with um, a type of um, periodic fever that's going on with him. And, um, you know, I've had out of maybe 10 doctors that I've seen, I've had, I had two jumped to the conclusion of, oh my God, we need to do a HIV test right now, right this second. And that's the, and today to have that stigma was still quite, you know, it was unsettling. It was um, upsetting as a mother, um, knowing that I had done all the, all the right things that I needed to do to protect my child. And they didn't have the education that, hey, this mother has done everything she's meant to do. And what, what seems to happen in in so many cases is that the stigma is coming from the healthcare sector and that would be where you would expect there to be no HIV stigma. Yeah, and that's where it comes from. I've had paramedics ask if they what would happen if they drank my drink and I've had um, a, a dentist when I very first was diagnosed called the chemist to let them know a lady with HIV was coming to pick up a script. You know, I, I've had I've had so much stigma. I've had blood tests by by someone that said, "Oh, you should be used to you should be used to needles with the lifestyle you live." Yet I had never used a needle in my life. That was when I was using drugs. So I obviously looked like a drug addict. I had a very sunken in face. I was forty something kilos and. I was clearly under the influence of methamphetamine still. This was back in Australia. You know, so they jumped straight to the conclusion of, oh, you're used to needles, you're a junkie, that's how you've got the HIV, which actually had nothing to do with why I had, how I had contracted HIV. It was from a man who didn't know that he had caught it from tattoos as a teenager. And in many cases, women are contracting HIV through unprotected sex. That's what happened with me. I decided to have a baby um, with my first partner and he had no idea in the world that he had uh, had HIV and he also had hep C. They believe, well, he believed that he must have contracted it from tattoos in, you know, living in a third world country at the time in a prison, Um, you know, homemade tattoos. That's where he believed it came from. And he chose not to have the treatment and he ended up, he has passed away. Uh, eight years ago, which just goes to remind me how important my meds are and how grateful I am to live in a country where we have such amazing access to 
to an amazing house. So it does, it um, makes all the little negative comments and things, you know, not feel as bad when you realize how lucky we are to live in a country with this amazing access to treatment. Yep. And it would be great if that could have that treatment available to everybody in the world. I mean, it would cost like a dollar a day. 38 million people in the world living with HIV and um, 16 million of those people yeah, don't get the treatment. It's just unbelievable. And they shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to. And that's just and, and the stigma around it as well. Like in Bali, where he was to tell his family and his friends, you know, he would have been cast out from his village. He would have none of his friends would have wanted to touch him. He wouldn't have been welcome to come into tattoo studios. He wouldn't have been welcome in his family's temple anymore. It would have been huge. So he he actually decided not to be treated and went back to Bali and ended up back using drugs and you know using drug leads to either jails institutions and death and he's left you know led him to jail and death you know that that's a whole nother story but that that was his journey and now with your your family your partner and your three boys you you travel a lot you've been to Bali a few times and you visit um your oldest son's family and and so that's beautiful you've got that connection so I I told his family and once he passed, you know, they, they were very supportive and they were very sorry um, that it had happened to me. They apologised a lot. And I said, you know, no one is to blame. I'm never going to hold blame towards somebody. We, we still travel. We live a normal, awesome, fun life. We do things with our kids. And I bet they're going to um, take up BMX riding like yourself when you were a young girl. Oh, definitely. My nine-year-old's on the bike, on a boat. Um, I just got to get him ballroom dancing now, which he's not as keen about. Yeah, one of each would be good. Charlotte, I'd just like to ask you what it means to you to share your story with others. Um, So for me, um, I feel privileged to be able to share my story with others. I I wish nothing more than to give other women a sense of hope, a sense of identity, to remove any... Ah, oh, just to remove that feeling of um of guilt, shame, and the stigma that is joint to HIV. I want every woman to feel that they can rise up, they can you know live with HIV and and it be okay, and not not to feel you know shunned upon and you're anything less, and you know, you're not from this world anymore because you are, and you are just as important as every other woman that walks this earth. You, if if not, you're even more special. My life has changed absolutely so much since I've become in contact with the positive women in Melbourne. Before that, I never really spoke of my HIV. It was just there existing in the background and it didn't need to be spoken of. It was just, you know, it was just something that was there that I lived with. It was never brought up. But when I became connected, I have this new sense of empowerment and, you know, um. I'm almost proud to be able to speak for the women that don't have the voices to speak. You know, my son always says to me, mum, we need to speak for the people who don't have their voices to speak. And that that just goes over and over in my head. You have the voice to speak for women that don't have their voices. So now is your time to speak. And it is. Oh, fantastic. So thank you, Charlotte, for sharing your story. It's been uh, like you've taken taken us all on an amazing journey thank you thank you thank thank you for having me thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story and I hope that I give hope to other women to um, feel that they can share their story because the more we share the more we empower each other and break down this stigma 
If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together Grant Program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV stigma once and for all? For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.